Welcome back to another episode of the OCD Family Podcast, where we stream a new episode every Friday, that's right, to provide support and resources to the OCD Family community. I'm so excited to dive into part three of my OCD-related disorder series because today we're talking about emetophobia. Also, I wanted to shout out to our fam on the other side of the pond over in the UK where we have a growing family tree for the OCD family community. And in the UK, today marks the 2022 Virtual OCD UK Conference, and that is going to be running, I believe, this evening through tomorrow. So you can Google it to find out more information, but I'm also going to be providing a link on this episode's blog post at ocdfamilypodcast.com. So feel free to jump over there and check that out as well. And you don't have to be from the UK to attend, of course. These virtual conferences are so awesome because they're accessible from anywhere, really. But for our European crew, I know the hours at least are definitely preferable to say when the US hosts their virtual conference, and it's usually on Pacific time here in the US. So please consider checking that out for more support wherever you live, and I think that's going to be an absolutely dynamic conference. But for now, you're here. So hey, let's get comfy and lean in as we all learn more about emetophobia. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the CD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Emetophobia. Emetophobia. That's quite a word, isn't it? (laughs) So what is emetophobia? Well, I think we can likely deduce it's a fear of something, as I think any word ending in phobia probably hints us toward that direction. But what is emetophobia a fear of, you ask? Well, it's a fear of throwing up, of vomiting. You're like, did I hear her right? Yeah, you heard me right. And hey, you might have had a good idea, based on the title of this podcast and all, that we would be talking about the fear of vomiting today. But I find many people in conversation, at least the conversations around me, have asked, like, is that really a thing? Because I think we can all grant, nobody loves throwing up. Some may feel out of control, and most people don't start their day wishing for some nausea with a side of mouth-watering. But I assure you, it is a thing. Interestingly enough, my mother-in-law even struggles with emetophobia. And let me just take a moment to say, she said I could talk about this on the podcast, so all my love to mom, love you mom. And hey, I'll have to try and get her on here one of these days because y'all will uh, enjoy yourselves some of my mother-in-law's spiciness, shall we say. Trust me, I say it in the most endearing way possible. I love it about her. 
and I dare say she wears that badge proudly. (laughs) Additionally, we have a panel of experts today, and oh gosh, again, I'm just pinching myself with the amazing guests who have joined us at the family table here to talk about OCD-related disorders. Barb Benson will be joining us. She is a therapist in the Minneapolis area, and she has a background in nursing, but made the switch to counseling about 15 years ago. At her practice, Anxiety Alliance Counseling, LLC, Barb sees clients of all ages with moderate to severe anxiety disorders. And our other guest is Dr. Nicole Bossi. She is a staff psychologist at the Lindner Center of Hope. She's on the board for OCD Midwest, and she specializes in exposure and response prevention therapy, or what we refer to around these parts as ERP, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's CBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy too, which can be referred to as ACT. And we haven't talked as a community much about ACT, though we will be covering it in the lineup for next year. But I do emphasize a big principle that comes from ACT on the regular, which is the idea of living to our values. If our ultimate value is in conflict with the tension that OCD or OCD-related disorders bring up, then we can ultimately learn to lean into the distress and toward our value-driven lives. This is an oversimplification of ACT, but it's a principle that you often hear me reference on the podcast, so it just seemed worth noting. I will be posting more about Barb and Nicole on this episode's podcast post over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com, so be sure to check that out for more information on them, citations, and the resources for this episode over on the blog. Lastly, as we prepare to dive into this talk on emetophobia, I'm reminded of a passage from Shakespeare's complete works that states, quote, extreme fear can neither fight nor fly, end quote. I love this because I'm actually a credentialed theater nerd here, which is a fun fact you probably didn't know about me, but there you go. I double majored in psychology and theater studies in undergrad, and I love the arts more than words really can describe. And I love this idea. And for more than just a metaphobia, but also for OCD as a whole, because we know that fear, that panic, that anguish can trigger the fight, flight, or freeze response so quickly that we often don't feel like we have time to think. So we react and we react quickly and we react strongly because it feels like our safety depends on it. But even Shakespeare was able to poetically script this reality for our community way back when. Extreme fear can neither fight nor flight. You see, it sticks with us. It's the reason why we can survive instances of vomiting or challenging our intrusive thoughts, and we can still feel scared. But here's the real lesson for us all. Extreme fear is just that. Fear. We don't have to do anything. We aren't in danger. We are feeling distress, a lot of distress. But the reality of not needing to fight, not needing to fly, but knowing that actually the answer is just 
moving on with our lives. We don't have to do anything. Let the fear wash in like a wave. It doesn't feel good, but it's a wave. And though we fear being swept under, it's a wave. It can't fight. It can't flight. It's a feeling, not a death sentence. And so I love holding on to this reminder as we lean into talking about emetophobia with Barb and Nicole, because waves can feel scary, very scary. But the greater danger is giving them more credit than they deserve. They're waves. And they can elicit extreme fears. But extreme fear can neither fight nor flight. And the best news of all, best news, is they don't have to. So let's dive in here, no pun intended, to learn more about emetophobia and what we can do or not do to thrive through it. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Nicole Bossi, as well as Barb Benson, licensed professional counselor, who also has an RN and a history of working as a nurse as well. And today the topic is emetophobia. Now, emetophobia, we've talked about way back in the beginning of the podcast, if you were with us then. But just to kind of catch everybody up, because we are in the midst of this dynamic OCD-related disorder series, emetophobia is something that is a little tricky because it often gets confused with OCD, but sometimes it occurs with OCD and sometimes it occurs with other things. So I'm just going to start off and why don't we start with you, Barb, if you don't mind, just talking about what is emetophobia? Emetophobia has been described as one of the most OCD-like phobias, which makes it pretty tricky to distinguish from OCD. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing to remember is that emetophobia is all about not throwing up. So when we look at the function of why people are avoiding things, if it's to not throw up, then we're probably looking at emetophobia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. And Nicole, when you see people coming in with emetophobia, mm-hmm. what do people typically come in and say it's presenting as? Because I'm going to guess, unless you're really kind of clued into this, it, yeah. people are going to give you another reason on why they're actually coming in for treatment. Yeah, a lot of times it's mostly, they'll say anxiety mm-hmm. or sometimes like fear of school. I've had a couple people say, you know, OCD. But I actually recently I've had a couple people come in saying they had emetophobia. That's excellent. That means awareness is being raised. I I think that's absolutely terrific. So as you both pointed out, we're talking about an extreme fear, a debilitating fear often of throwing up or the thought of vomiting. And it doesn't even always have to be actually the act of throwing up, having seen somebody vomited or puke. And You mentioned some school anxiety, Nicole. I think that's really helpful because sometimes you might have people that you think you're just having kind of a social anxiety, which can be true in this sense of I'm anxious because I'm around people. I have a better likelihood of getting sick. If I throw up, if I do, and I don't die from it, how embarrassing. Holy cow. 
what if I see somebody else get sick? Yeah, and there are just a lot of different pieces to it. So we really wanted to cover emetophobia because, as you were saying, Barb, it is really hard to differentiate between some of these other mental health disorders, and sometimes they can co-occur with other mental health disorders. So that certainly can make it tricky. But can we, let's, let's kind of zoom into this a little bit. And you have your nursing background. And so emetophobia can have definitely these physiological components that are extremely triggering and raise a lot of anxiety. And as we know, anxiety can also trigger a lot of physiological symptomology that co-occur. And so can you talk a little bit more about when we're thinking about differential diagnosis and we're thinking about some of the kind of the physiological cues that can happen, can you help our community understand kind of what's going on for the sufferer? Yeah, and I think so with emetophobia, people have this fear of throwing up. Therefore, the nausea, which typically comes before throwing up, mm-hmm. is very triggering. Mm-hmm. Well, what's one of the most common symptoms of anxiety? Mm-hmm. Nausea, mm-hmm. Uh, any sort of stomach upset. This gets to be a cycle very quickly that people fear throwing up, they get anxious, then their stomach hurts or they feel nauseous, and then we get this completed circuit going. Mm-hmm. And there are other physiological symptoms. If people are highly triggered, meaning let's say a mom is in bed and she hears her, her child throw up in the next room, mm-hmm. there's going to pretty immediately be a feeling of nausea, but also some shaking, rapid heart rate, mm-hmm. shallow, fast breathing. And there might be just thoughts of dread. You know, I can't handle this. So feelings of dread, Mm -hmm. but thoughts of this is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. This is catastrophic. I can't handle this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes we might have family members that might have a flair for dramatics, shall we say. And so this isn't something of someone just acting up and being a little extra or high maintenance or a drama queen or king about this. This is a legitimate debilitating level of fear and panic. It can get to that panic level as, as you're really describing. Yeah, this, this absolutely can be debilitating to the point that people are feeling stuck in their homes. Mm. It can really make for a narrow, circumscribed life where they're trying to avoid any social contact. Right. So just kind of creating a bubble for themselves and hoping that they can do everything in their power to keep any kind of virus, germ, bacteria, something that could make them sick. Maybe even a movement. You think about people that get motion sickness. And it really is, it's unfortunate because nausea, not that I'm going to promote symptom checker here, y'all, but nausea is a very common symptom across so many different things. So you could have acid reflux and get nausea. You could have allergies with post-nasal drip and get nausea. You could have GI symptoms. You could have pregnancy. You could have just a a bug, a a 24-hour virus 
You could have COVID. You could have so many different things. And so because there can be so many triggers, that becomes a very, very scary and isolating for fear if you go out in any direction or engage in any of these activities that might bring about sickness or at least nausea, which now we're not just avoiding throwing up, we're avoiding nausea-inducing situations, that can be tricky. Nicole, you are definitely experienced with this as well. So what are you seeing too in terms of some of those physiological cues? And really when we're just talking differential diagnosis, because OCD certainly, this is an OCD-related disorder, but it's also been kind of coded as an example of extreme specific phobia. So if you can tell us a little bit more too in terms of how does this differentiate And again, it can overlap with, say, contamination OCD or broadly OCD or even something like ARFID, which is a a subtype of eating disorder. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. I think like Barb was saying, like with emetophobia, there's a very strong, the main core fear is um, throwing up. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be, if you kind of drill down to like what the actual fear is that or the sensations that it brings about, like the nausea, the shakiness, that sort of thing. Right. With the ARFID, I think a good differential could be, you know, like if someone is avoiding foods because they're afraid they're going to make them sick, mm-hmm. that would be more related to emetophobia and their food can get very restrictive and, you know, they'll maybe only eat like one or two states things. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, we'll just kind of umbrella this category, picky eating. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, when it comes to picky eating and what we're talking about when we say ARFID, it's Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, and it's technically classified under the umbrella of eating disorder. But we can also have kiddos with sensory processing disorder and ASD, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, also having some sensory stuff around food intake. And certainly here within emetophobia, you can also have some restrictive food intake for fear that it's going to cause you to vomit, for fear it might make you nauseous. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think kind of looking for does the fear of vomiting come up? Because it will be very clear if it leads to emetophobia, if that fear of vomiting is there. And because there can be a number of reasons and aversive consequences like vomiting can be inclusive. But if it's kind of just one thing on the list versus, well, because I can't vomit. I mean, you'll know. (laughs) You'll know. Like, that's the clear winner, winner, chicken dinner. I do not want to vomit. And so ARFID, that's one, again, that I think not a lot of people understand. But if you look broadly into the community or people searching for help, it's a lot more common than one would realize. So absolutely, those those are some differential diagnoses. And so we can have them overlap, but we can have them come together. So in terms of treatment, in terms of when is this at a level where you need treatment? Because nobody loves, again, to feel nauseous. We're we're not like, hey, let me go. Actually, let me me rephrase that. Kids with spinny rides when you're young and you have a high threshold for vestibular input, you might go, hey, yeah, actually, I kind of think it's fun to get whirled around to the point that I feel like I could puke. That sounds like the worst nightmare for an emetophobia sufferer. But in terms of when does this meet the threshold of being disruptive or needing to be supported by treatment? Barb, I'll I'll start with you. 
I think this is a question about how much misery this is causing. How is this affecting the person's life? Yeah. Are they avoiding to the extent that it's really limiting contact or that they are just wound up in worry for good portions of the day, Mm -hmm. most days, Mm -hmm. and that's how it can get for a metaphobia sufferers? So you're talking about distresses on a continuum. And for some people, you know, on the outside, if we're a family member, if, it, if we're a spouse of somebody, we can go, eh, we, we can deal with it. And, you know, they function still or whatever. Maybe, maybe a little bit of distress or maybe they're really good at masking the distress. I feel like we're all really good at masking. People aren't like, hey, let me just show you all my baggage um, <laughs> every time we go out. And so I think emetophobia is definitely one of those things because there's a lot of fear of embarrassment. You know, it can be this doom and gloom about what if I choke to death on vomit or I don't survive this. But it also can be, it would be so embarrassing. I would die. I would die of embarrassment. And so it, it can very easily lead to avoidance. And, you know, having just gone through a worldwide pandemic while staying home, staying safe was, you know, definitely a priority for so long and really reinforced from all the messaging. It was also kind of a breeding ground for people that were already isolating. In addition to, here's another thing that could make me sick, kind of a really compound nature. So I think that speaks a lot to kind of looking at that level of distress, and it's going to be different for everybody. Distress is a good point. I really also look at how much of the interfere with your life. Mm-hmm. So are you like, you know, if it, they're young kids, are they like, you know, refusing to go to school? Are you, you know, so anxious and distressed that you are going to stores or you're not just being around maybe little kids that have stomach bugs? So really getting in the way of doing what the, the person wants to do. Right. And when we talk about that avoidance piece, because I think this is a piece that has been highlighted more and more. If you use kind of a Y box or Cy box, there's now a Y box and Cy box too, that really accounts for that avoidance piece that can show up in OCD. But there is also a very large piece to emetophobia that is going to be avoidance as a primary source of keeping from getting sick. You know, so for example, with my mother-in-law, she always, always wants to use paper towels after she washes her hands and you wash your hands after everything. And you think about, you know, in these environmental times where people are trying to find more efficient ways to do normal activities without using paper products or supplies and whatnot, there are not a lot of bathrooms especially public bathrooms, which a lot of emetophobia people would probably avoid anyway, if they could. But there are not a lot of bathrooms that have the paper towels anymore or anything like that. So anytime she comes and visits at our house, she will have a roll of paper towels with her. She has her travel roll of paper towels. And it it took the longest time. I was treating OCD even for a couple of years before I was like, is there something about that with the paper towels? And I finally asked her, I said, Are you, do you use the paper towels because you're afraid the hand towel is going to transmit germs and that will make you sick? And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> well, why, yeah. why, would, why would anybody use the hand towel? 
And so you can think of, you know, gosh, 10, 20 years ago, going to a gas station, which is already like a contamination exposure overload, but where they had those, yes, you pull it down and it's like a canvas cloth or something that kind of recycles through. I mean, talk about exposure city. You literally will walk away with something. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it became this thing. And so we see avoidance as a big measure, but it does overlap. And we are getting more and more aware of how those avoidance measures play into OCD. So kind of even pointing back to the piece of could it be both? Could it be one or the other? If I treat one, is it going to work for both? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that, Nicole? Yeah, I would say, I mean, a lot of times there is some comorbid OCD. But I think in general, as long as you're helping the person to lean into what they're anxious about and what they're distressed about, regardless of if you're treating all of it or some of it, I think it's going to help them learn that their anxiety will decrease without having to avoid. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, you don't have to necessarily know all of their distress or all of their fears right away. You can kind of, if it's they're presenting with like the fear of vomiting, starting with that could be fine. And then maybe some other stuff comes out of that as well. Yeah. And Barb, I mean, also asking that direct question, right? Like if someone's presenting with contamination-based fears, and it certainly can show up in other areas of fears, social phobia and things like that. But if someone is presenting with that, going that little extra piece and going, and why would that be distressing? Trying to get to the the core fear that might be beyond the germs, that might be beyond just being out where you could embarrass yourself. Yeah, I think for people with emetophobia, they're highly aware that what they are trying to avoid is vomiting. Mm -hmm. People with contamination OCD are avoiding feeling like something is contaminated. Mm -hmm. So there's a pretty clear distinction. And in my experience, people have been pretty aware of that. Mm -hmm. But why are you not opening that door with your bare hand? Why are you using your sleeve? Because I don't want to get norovirus from the handle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. just very direct. Whereas someone with contamination OCD would say, I, it just, mm, my hand feels dirty. Mm -hmm. Like it. Yeah. And I think that's a really good piece. And there is, you know, as much as OCD and emetophobia and that extreme, anytime someone is in extreme fight, flight, or freeze mode, the insight about what's going on can get kind of muddied. But they are very clear about the goal. They are very clear about what they're scared of. I think actually... And I could be wrong, but I think where it might get missed more is at the clinician level, that they're not diving in deep enough because they might hear, I might get norovirus and they're like, oh, they're scared of getting germs, right? right? And saying, okay, and what if you did? What would happen? What would happen if you got norovirus? And it can be tricky because we only have so much time that we can fill and spend on assessment and we kind of have this setup if we're using evidence-based practices, which I hope we are, that, you know, we're going to kind of launch into some psychoed and then we're going to launch into, you know, the first waves of treatment and, you know, and so on and so forth. 
but still, yeah, it's an it's an important thing. And I think there's a lot of people kind of learning and growing into how to do OCD treatment, but kind of going a little bit further and going, and is there a fear consequence of what will happen if you get norovirus? It might not even be about emetophobia so much. It might be about existential. And I don't know anything that could cause me to die. I don't know what happens next. You know, it could it could go into so many different areas. And so I think that's a really great point. The client is going to know. They know why they're scared. And so just even being able to plainly say, what are the elephants in the room? Let's make sure we count them all. <laughs> I would just add that while they tend to be very aware what, of what they're trying to avoid, they're not always super insightful about how over the top their anxiety is, just how irrational their fear is. Right. That's, that's a great point. And they might see it as, well, of course I don't want to get sick. Of course I don't want to throw up. Then everybody in the family is going to get it. Or then, you know, it's, it's this, I'm standing on the edge of the cliff <laughs> looking out at this great, vast, dark pool of dread. I don't know what will happen, <laughs> but it's not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. So in terms of looking at treatment, and I think my my thoughts on this, especially going through the pandemic, and that is just experiencing the fatigue, let alone how triggering that has been in so many different ways, how it's impacted mental health in such a, a big way. I tend to tell people, let's err on the side of what could it hurt? If I am to the point of going, do I need treatment or not? Then it doesn't hurt. If you go in and get an assessment and someone's like, you are doing great, you know, way to go, no worries, <laughs> then great. And if you go in and someone's like, hey, I think I could help and support you, then great. Like there's, if you have that question for you, for a loved one, for a spouse, for a partner, bubbling up in your mind at all, what's the harm in just seeing and there might be some avoidance again because are we gonna have to go out are we gonna have to you know come across germs but the frenemy of avoidance at least we have telehealth so it is <laughs> it's it's a good thing but it can be hard and it, it might even be an exposure to work toward coming into the office if you're if you're nearby for telehealth but yeah i think that's a really good point so now I want to kind of look at what might some typical triggers be, because there can be different types of triggers when we're talking about emetophobia. There can be that door handle that could have norovirus. There could be physical, environmental, or even interceptive triggers, which is that physiological cueing, like, is my throat watering? Does that mean I'm getting sick? And kind of going through the throes of the anxiety that can increase. So Nicole, if you'd like to start us off, if we could talk about some triggers that are common that you might be able to get your spidey sense up on if you're noticing this with a loved one or a partner. Yeah, I think some common triggers would be, you know, like maybe hearing that someone has had the stomach bug. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, yeah, my kid was just throwing up the other day. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, right. So hearing about someone being sick. Seeing someone get sick if you're kind of out and about in public. So watching it, hearing it, smelling things that might kind of smell like vomit could be another trigger. Mm -hmm. Different things uh, like um, 
you know, you mentioned the rides and things like that. So like kind of after coming off of a ride and just kind of feeling like the world is kind of spinning with me a trigger. Yeah. And you mentioned the mouth watering, the feeling nauseous. Sometimes when people get hungry, they get nauseous. So that could be that's like true. a little bit of a trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Or avoiding food, as we talked about before. And how about you, Barb? I would just add that the fall and winter can be a trigger Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because stomach viruses tend to be more prominent in the fall and winter. I have a lot of clients who tend to start getting more anxious around October and then kind of white knuckle it through the winter. Yeah. Yes. That's a very good point. And things like going to the doctor's office, especially during that time. I mean, the doctor's office, that's where all the sick people are, right? Or a hospital. And so you think about, I'm feeling sick. I don't want to feel sick, but I'm I'm terrified of going to the doctor. Because, you know, how many times have you said like, oh, I'm kind of feeling sick. Have you gone to the doctor? Mm -mm. (laughs) No, (laughs) no thanks. And so... We might find other kind of remedies to try and help facilitate that. We could lean into essential oils. We could lean into, again, not leaving the house or maybe only going to public spaces that don't have just kind of recycled air. Definitely probably not wanting to go on an airplane. Talk about recycled air. Being in a car with somebody that you don't trust that's outside of your family or if your family, if you're a loved one, you might be able to relate to this OCD family community of getting back and saying, I don't want to ride in the car with you because you were at the grocery store and you've been exposed to all the things. And so until you shower and have time for that to go and they're kind of like in a quarantine, then I can't get in the car with you. And so there can be a lot of different things, especially, yes, during cold and flu season. That was the tricky thing about COVID because there wasn't a cold and flu season type timeline. It could happen anytime. It was continuous. And there was a lot that we didn't know. So in terms of, I wouldn't say there was, uh, well, I won't even get into debate on whether there was intentional fear mongering or not. I know a lot of people have big feelings. But what I will say is it definitely impacted people when you consider kind of that fear of what if I get sick? What if I get somebody else sick? And and family members may even sometimes feel that pressure of like, I know my loved one struggles with this so much. We'll just, you know, we'll Instacart it to the house, I guess. And that's something to hear in the States for any international folks where you have your groceries delivered. And I wish that all was very prevalent when I had young, young babies, but it is what it is. So yeah, absolutely. It can have those different, different triggers. So what do you both see when we start thinking about hiccups that come along maybe in the family system, in dating or marriage relationships? I feel like it shows up in marriage or partnership more when there's a little more commitment, whether you share a mortgage or you're married or you have kids, because we're kind of on a little bit of a different like best footing with people when we're dating. But still, there's not a lot of an ability to compartmentalize this fear. And so what do you see as some of, I guess, let's start with strengths first. Some of the biggest strengths that families, loved ones can provide when you have an emetophobia suffer in your household or in a relationship. What are some of the advantages that the community surrounding them have in helping to support them? I would say, like, you know, just being supportive and understanding. I think loved ones could you know, without accommodating, I think just kind of, you know, being with them and letting them experience the distress and 
just letting them know that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Be helpful. Yeah. I would agree with that. Sometimes what's the most helpful for someone with a metaphobia isn't always what feels to the partner, spouse, family member like a very helpful thing. And that is to not comply with the phobia, not comply with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but that is an advantage or a, a strength that family members have in that they can support the ultimate well-being of this person by not supporting the anxiety, not accommodating the anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So supporting the person, not the condition, right? And it's, it's something, you know, especially I'm thinking about in terms of the parenting realm that is hard, but we do all the time anyway, right? Like, it's not that we want to see our kids suffer, but they have to have natural consequences. They didn't clean up their room. What does that lead to? Or, you know, if they hit somebody or take somebody's toy without asking, you know, there's a natural consequence. And it's part of, and it's not because we're like, haha, yeah, kid, you'll learn now. But it's like, you will learn, though, in time that even though in the moment this is really what you wanted, the cause and effect of it, it wasn't helpful for you. And so I'm implementing a consequence. I'm implementing a reality check for you so that you can have the best life that you can have, hopefully, you know, and and what you do with it goes from there. But it's not our job to absolutely change the behavior. It's just to provide that environment where there are positive consequences, there are sometimes negative consequences, but they're all natural consequences and not shying away from that because we're afraid it's going to cause a meltdown or a problem. Some of the trickiness that I run into, and I'm guessing you, you ladies both do as well, is in that kind of partner marriage relationship, because it's one thing when it's your kid and you're like, you know what, you may be afraid of this. And you're afraid dad was out just getting dirty birdie and and we're all riding in the car. But the car's leaving now. So if you want to go to dinner, you're getting in the car now or you're going to miss out. You're going to sit at home and be mad and have your fit, whatever. But we're going to go eat dinner and you have a choice on whether you join us. That doesn't fly very well with partners. Doesn't fly very well with spouses. I know if my husband just left because he was like, you weren't out here soon enough. I'd be like, excuse me, right? You know, and so it can get really tricky in those intimate relationships in terms of, you know, how to support the person, have those boundaries where you're not going to accommodate, but without the fear, because I think sometimes the fear is like, they're going to leave me or they're not going to want to stay with me if I don't help them feel better. And they're just feeling anxious. I, I love them. So I want them to feel less anxious. Do you guys have any ideas with couples or whether you're married or or partners, how to kind of manage that? Yeah, I would say that you can always empathize with the person who's anxious. You can always validate how they're feeling. That doesn't have to change the bottom line that you are not going to get in the pit with them Mm -hmm. and help them dig deeper. That learning how to calmly be with someone who's highly agitated and distraught because they're afraid they're going to throw up or they're afraid that, you know, whatever the trigger is, 
and just stay calm in the presence of that distress mm-hmm. while being really, really hard, that can be a huge help for that person who's feeling overwhelmed and anxious. Right. Just sure. that presence of you're not alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I'm here with you. I'm not going to abandon you, but neither am I going to aid and abet mm-hmm. the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. Great point. That's great, Barb. How about you, Nicole? Anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, I think just like, yes, being there for them and validating them or everything, just kind of like, yeah, I know it's hard. Maybe explaining either like if they're working with a therapist, like, okay, this is like what we're doing to lean into the anxiety. Like, I'm not going to accommodate you. I'm going to not let you escape or avoid those sorts of things I think could be helpful. Yeah. I, <laughs> I ran in, my mother-in-law is amazing and I have a permission to discuss some of these things. But one of the last time we were visiting her, she has always had an easy trigger or at least a perceived easy trigger for vertigo which is a valid thing that vertigo is very, well, nobody wants to get caught in a vertigo episode, whether you have a metaphobia or not. And so one of her things is she doesn't like to look at fans or anything spinning. If you're at a restaurant, she needs your hat or she needs to sit in the chair that doesn't face the fan. She doesn't have fans run in her house, even if it's hot. You know, just different things of, of that sort. And so recognizing and, you know, people can be at different places with this, but, you know, supporting can be, I empathize at least, maybe I can't fully understand, but I can empathize that you're feeling really scared right now. And I know giving you my hat or just changing my seat isn't going to be the most loving thing I can do for you, but I'm here and this is hard. That's one response. Ultimately, you know, whether she says damn it, I'm going to go buy a hat then. <laughs> then she goes, okay, it's a hat. That's her choice. But I don't have to give the hat. I don't have to move the seat. And I can say, I'm still going to sit here with you. I'm going to have breakfast with you. I love you. I'm so glad we're together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't have to move the seat. We don't have to give the hat. And for many, many years, we did. We did. Mm-hmm. So that adjustment, as with anything, when you are a family member and you start to say, you know what, I'm not going to hand over the hat, we can expect some big feelings to arrive, right? Because you've done it before. Why aren't you helping me? And a lot of things can be verbalized, especially when we think of children, but we can, this happens with adults as well. They can really go for like the jugular there on some of the comments. And it's driven out of a place of fear, not out of a place of, of punishment. But literally, we need to think of that brain being similar with OCD, that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And they're struggling. And so it's not that they're trying to be hateful. They can say some really hurtful things in the midst of that. They can really personalize the feedback. And you can be like, you can say that's not personal, but that was absolutely personal. So what, what recommendations would you have for family members, partners, siblings that kind of run into this, especially if somebody, whether they're going into treatment or not, maybe you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I can't fix this for them, but I cannot give them my hat, whether they get treatment or not. What kind of support can you give for the family members that might go, I don't know what to do with some of the, some of the kind of feedback or fight back that I'm getting? 
when I'm trying to do what's best for them and what's best for us ultimately. Yeah, I think a lot of times we kind of describe it for family members as like, you're going to have to tolerate your own mistrust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it's going to be hard to not want to like help the person feel less anxious and you're going to feel uncomfortable. And yeah, like you might hear some hard, hard things that maybe they don't mean, but just realizing that will get easier and that will pass the less you accommodate. Yeah, yeah. And Barb is like, yes, yes. <laughs> she agrees. I'm just nodding all, all the way through. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because absolutely, this is, this is so good and so helpful. It is really, really hard when you're getting that pushback. And as you're saying, Nicole, it's a parallel process that our anxiety decreases when their anxiety decreases. So if we can lower it for them, then we feel better too. Right. But a really lovely reframe, I think, is going, I can really empathize, even if the triggers aren't the same, with what my loved one's going through. Because sitting here with their distress and feeling helpless, even though I'm actually doing the thing that is going to help ultimately in the long run, but it doesn't have that temporary relief. Right. This is a little bit of what they're going through, and I can I can empathize. It sucks. It yeah. absolutely sucks. And it's also loving. And I think that's hard because we don't want to associate anxiety with loving, especially if someone has been crippled with anxiety. Because when we, you know, when we talk about starting to really lean in and anchor down on non-accommodating behaviors. It's not like this is the first time this person has lost their business about this fear. This has probably been years. It's probably been years. So you think about our threshold for frustration tolerance. Like if it's a behavior that comes out of nowhere, we might be surprised. We might react. But we also might be like, well, that was new for them and kind of in shock, kind of stay in the same place. But if you've been dealing with this dynamic for years, your threshold, your empathy, even for this situation, you might be real frustrated with it and annoyed yeah. and embarrassed. You know, they're making a scene out in public. If you are in public, if you made it to the public. <laughs> and so, you know, that can be really, really hard. Can we speak to that a little bit in terms of the vicarious exhaustion and frustration tolerance, you know, just really being stretched to the max for some of these loved ones supporting their sufferers? Yeah, I think once they're, especially in treatment, and let's say a child has a metaphobia and a parent is needing to respond differently, then the child's going to react <laughs> in a stronger way. Yeah. There's definitely a tough love component to what the, the parent has to do. Mm -hmm. And that's going to bring up a lot of feelings from the child, and they're not going to have the skills or the the verbiage to really articulate what you're doing makes me more anxious in this moment. Yeah. They're going to spew out some things that might be really hurtful. And this parent has just had it. Yeah. They are burnt out. Yes. Playing with their child's anxiety. So helping parents understand that it's okay to take a break or family members in general. Yeah. It's okay to take a break. Mm -hmm. If you feel like this is just getting over your head and you're going to react in a negative way, just tell a loved one, 
I just need to take a break for a minute. Yes, absolutely. That is so, that's very, very good. I guess just realizing that, yeah, like, you know, I think self-care is huge for the parents that are dealing with an anxious kid or Mm -hmm. a spouse or a partner. I think, you know, really doing things, kind of separating yourself from that a little bit too. So doing things that are like enjoyable for you or relaxing so that you have, I guess, more patience. Yeah. 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 If it refills, recharges your battery. And yeah, absolutely. Self-care sometimes gets a bad rap from people that are like, you know, do you need your little safe zone? Do you need your little self-care zone? And it's like, you know what? We all need to recharge. Oh, sure. Yeah. We all need to recharge. And to some that seems like a waste of time, a waste of energy and not being productive. For some, it might seem like a luxury and there is no time. I'm dealing with this 24-7. You tell me when I have time. But there is always time. It can feel all-consuming and it will be. It will be all-consuming if we don't intentionally, intentionally carve out five minutes, 10 minutes. Let's get it to 30 Maybe right. an afternoon. What can we do? Is there anybody that can support you? They don't know how to deal with them. That's okay. It'd probably be good for them. They don't know how to deal with their <laughs> things, so they probably won't do all the things. And and it'll be good for you, whether they experience the distress or not. You have to be able to take care of yourself. Right. We're yes. no good to anybody else. Completely drained, with no right. threshold to deal with any of it. Right. So absolutely, I think that's a really, really good point. And so in terms of like treatment strategies and kind of the preferred treatment or, or you know, when medication might be recommended or not, and I know we're, we're not doctors, Nicole is a doctor, but not a medical doctor, but we do also have Barb who has that RN background. And so we'd love to talk about just some of the treatment strategies that have been found to be effective for emetophobia and when, especially from that medical perspective, Barb, you see medication. But I I think Nicole and I can probably also speak to when we might say, we're not a medical doctor, but please talk with one because I think it could be helpful. And we absolutely do. So (laughs) I'm sure. I don't even need to. She's nodding, but I, I knew it. I knew it. I could tell. So, Barb, maybe we'll start with you if you could talk about some of the common treatments for treating emetophobia or how people can advocate for getting in the proper treatment versus what might be a little more or less effective or harmful. Yeah. So, really, there are three different pieces to treatment. So, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is pretty much the gold standard. Within cognitive behavioral therapy, There's this thing called ERP, exposure and response prevention. And that is like the ultimate Mm -hmm. (laughs) goal of treatment. Mm -hmm. Got someone coming in with emetophobia. It really helps people in a gradual and predictable way face what they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. There can be work on the cognitive side. So really looking into their belief systems and their thoughts that surround throwing up or or family members getting sick or germs. But in my experience, it's been most helpful to combine both of those. So the cognitive piece and the more exposure-based piece. Yeah. 
Because when you look at ERP, you could look at maybe a trigger is this thought, the cognitive piece. And so we can really create an exposure around this thought triggers it and what are my responses going to be. So similar to OCD treatment, where we say we're going to resist our compulsions, this in a metaphobia, we're also going to resist often the avoidance whether it's a certain food or going a certain place or movement or any one of those things. But yeah, we're going to we're going to lean into that and the cognitive piece can fall in line then. So ERP is kind of like Oz or the Wizard of Oz. It's like we're, it's right. where we're going, right. <laughs> hopefully, and having that exposure piece to help cut down on the avoidance so that you can live your life. Like, is your life wanting to be holed up in your house? Probably not. Maybe it's like to want to backpack through Europe someday. Maybe it's to want to go see, you know, all of the seven wonders of the world. Maybe it's maybe it's just wanting to be able to go to the grocery store and get the the good kind of whatever food or cereal or things that not just what someone's buying there. You get to pick. You have a little more freedom because you're there and you don't have to be limited by what your thoughts and fears decide you get to be the leader you get to be in charge and that is really really empowering so absolutely you're saying a combination of those cognitive pieces are often really really best served in that ERP model which this community we talk about ERP like it's water it's here it's it, it's the thing and so i think that's great and in terms of medication what would you say when would it be appropriate to kind of consider something like an SSRI or whatnot. And again, we would refer to the doctors, but what, you know, in your experience, when do you see medication as being a helpful additive to this equation? I think you have to look at what else the person is dealing with. Oftentimes when someone has emetophobia, they may also have co-occurring OCD, social anxiety, generalized anxiety. So you have to assess them overall and see how they're functioning overall. If they aren't doing well on a more global scale, then I think medication is warranted. Yeah. For a child, let's say you've got, you know, a fourth grader who is being brought in by the parents who's developed emetophobia, doing pretty well overall other than that, I would not recommend medication. I would say let's try therapy first mm -hmm. and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I have found that a lot of people who come in with emetophobia, adults, are already on medication because they've got these co-occurring anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. Medication can help sort of quiet it down enough that then it makes doing the exposure work more possible Yeah, versus hitting these walls of resistance. Right. Uh, right. And that resistance it can be very frustrating for the family. But there also might be some resistance from the family, even if the client is in that space of like, okay, I can, I'm ready, I'm done with this, I want to go for it. Because the anticipation of the anxiety, or at least the routine as we've established, is known, it's comfortable, it's something we're used to. Often anxiety doesn't exist in a vacuum, so there may be other anxious people in the home, and being able to tolerate that could be very hard. But that's a great point of being on an SSRI. You probably, there's a high likelihood you might already be on a SSRI. Maybe not the proper dosage or maybe, yeah. you know, every now and then uh, 
but often when I find people coming in, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been on this, the lowest dose for 20 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Because it's scary. SSRIs can sometimes have a side effect of some GI distress, some nausea, especially in the beginning as you're kind of titrating up and finding that right dosage. So going on new medications or we think about other medical conditions that might have a like pill or a shot that has a side effect of nausea. Look, think about the pharmaceutical commercials. It's like, do you get seasonal allergies? Here are the 85 different side effects you can enjoy, which doesn't mean you will, but these have been reported to reduce your sniffles during seasonal allergies. And people are like, I'm good. I'll, I'll deal with the allergies. And so there's a lot of even fear in changing doses sometimes, even if you have long extended the tolerance of this dose and it's pretty much not doing a lot. Again, talk to a medical professional. I'm not a doctor, but, but you know, I, I, I have found that in my observations of clinical work over time. Nicole, would you have anything too that you would add to that? I was, I would just kind of piggyback off what Barb said. I think it oftentimes, you know, if someone is like very avoidant and not even able to do any of the work that you're suggesting, it's very helpful, I think, to get like an SSRI on board just so that some of the exposure work can be approached. Yeah. Yeah. Because last time they just, you know, it's too anxiety provoking to do any of it or even talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Even talking about it is exposure 101. And they're like, I can't, I can't, I don't want to take this class. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, my my personal and I'm I'm pretty candid with clients when I talk about this and I've talked about this uh, on the podcast before as well. But my recommendation on medication has changed because I take medication and I'm not shy about that. I had anxiety most of my life, not knowing that it was OCD. I treated OCD for a couple of years, not realizing it was OCD. I had a lot of mental compulsions that to me were just normal ways of digesting information. And so once it got to a certain point, I didn't know what it was, but I was to the point in my little humble pie of going, I need to be on medication because I just, I don't see this getting better. And I, I want to, I want my life back kind of thing. When I went on medication though, the very first thing I thought getting through those initial side effects or whatnot, the very first thing I thought was, why did I wait 10, 15 years? I could have taken this as a kid and it would have been helpful. I I just kind of went like there was this, even in me, there was this bias, even though had you asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, no, I don't bias medication. I think it's great for people who need it. Yeah. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. I need it. I'm a much better, full living life person. I'm a happier person. And it's not that it changed my personality. I think people are afraid that it's going to change you dramatically, it just opened me up to be able to be me. And once I was on medication, I went, I thought it needed to be, in hindsight, this crisis mode to be able to benefit from this medication support. And now I am just going my whole last decade or two would have been so much freer had I had I been willing to kind of just even try and see, because the intensity around that had gone down and that wasn't even going into ERP treatment. I'm an ERP therapist. So, I mean, I do it like in a nut because it's just, that's what you do. But I, it's really changed how I recommend for clients. Again, all we can do is recommend. 
But often, especially if you're in school, like they can't recommend certain things blatantly, whether it's an autism diagnosis or a a medication thing. They're just going to think collaboratively with you without saying it and hope that you get the hint. But we have a real opportunity to tell people, you know, you 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 get to make the choice on this. But I do think you would benefit from at least talking with a doctor about it, even if you say no to the medication. So I've I've had a real new kind of perspective on and it kind of bleeds into my same perspective for therapy like you don't have to be in crisis mode we can be preventative before the you know for lack of a word better word shit hits the fan completely which might trigger some nausea (laughs) might trigger some vomiting (laughs) wouldn't want that so but yeah so that's kind of my perspective i wanted to talk about some realistic snapshots and examples of recovery. And both of you guys were sharing with me beforehand about kind of your experience with emetophobia. And so if we can lean in, Barb, would you like to start in terms of talking about your own experience with emetophobia and what kind of led you into being able to treat it? Yeah, I had emetophobia from the time I was a a probably young elementary age child. Through, you know, maybe late 30s to 40. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of fear that unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to understand. Mm-hmm. So I can remember when one of my girls would get sick with a stomach flu bug. Yeah. My husband would, I would wake him up. <laughs> he would go attend to the child while I laid under my covers shaking, literally shaking in fear, mm-hmm. trying to do everything I can to just make it until morning. Because of course, this often happens at night, which is like a horror movie. Of course, it's not going to happen during the daytime when it's all sunshiny. And I think I can empathize with my clients mm-hmm. because I've, I've been there. I have been in that despairing place of real panic yeah, and feeling like, I I think for me, there was a lot of shame around it too. Mm -hmm. I didn't talk a lot about it. I, my mom, who was also a nurse, she didn't really get it. My husband, who was fabulously supportive, maybe enabled me some, but, you know, I, I said, well, what do you think when you get the flu and you have to throw up? He goes, I think eventually I'm going to get better and life goes on. And now that's something that I use a lot with people is in terms of trying to reframe. But that's, that's sort of my experience with it. It has improved. Being a nurse, quite frankly, was really a good exposure. I was just thinking, I bet because you're going to see it all. And you're going to be in there because nurses are amazing and you're going to be the main face of the medical provider experience you see, whether you're in the hospital or in the doctor's office. And so, yeah, I, I bet you came across that quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you, Barb, when you were younger, like, how did it start to emerge for you where you can pinpoint back in hindsight and go, yeah, that was a metaphobia for me as a kid? 
I don't know of a specific time when it started. Some people can point to a specific situation. I didn't have that. But the thing that looking back stands out for me is the extreme fear and then the avoidance, Mm -hmm. all kinds of avoidance, really subtle forms of avoidance. Mm -hmm. Like if I knew a friend's sibling Mm -hmm. uh, had a stomach bug, I'm not going to sit next to them at lunch that day. Right. Or if one of my friends didn't wash their hands well and we'd all know that there's some going around at school, I'm not going to hang out with them. So yeah. a lot of avoidance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How about for you, Nicole? I mean, you've also had an experience and you're also a mom. Where did you find a metaphobia popping up? Sure. Yeah. It's interesting because I have always just said throughout my entire life, like, I don't like puke. It's gross. It's disgusting. Sure. Like, and I remember like in like first or second grade, like someone would throw up in class. And I remember sitting there and just like crying. And I would, I was like saying to like, you know, my classmates or my teacher, like, what if I get sick too? Something like that. Mm-hmm. I never had like any avoidances or anything. I just was always just like, oh, that's gross. Like, I don't want to be around it. And then I got pregnant right when COVID happened. So like in March of 2020, when I saw that I was pregnant. (laughs) Tough time to, very tough time. Yeah. Very terrible timing. I was very much wanted and like planned and stuff, but yeah. So that happened. That is, I would say I also developed OCD around that time too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So lots of like just being pregnant and the hormones, like what going to harm the baby? Just, it was off the chart. Right. And by this point, I had a, like, I was an OCD therapist. So, you know, I was treating OCD and I'm like, what? Like, I know this isn't rational. Like, why is this happening? So anyway, fast forward, I, you know, have my, my son and, you know, around a year or so, he gets his first stomach bug. Mm-hmm. I was literally terrified. In the past, like, I could avoid it, right? Like, I could, you know, run outside if my husband's getting sick or I could, you know, not be around my family if they're sick. But when you have a kid that's sick, it you can't do that. <laughs> right. So yes, literally, I can very much relate to what Barb was saying. Literally, like hearing him get sick, just that immediate like shot of adrenaline, shaking, trembling. I remember that so he got a stomach bug one weekend and then the next weekend he was throwing up again. Mm-hmm. And I was literally like in tears, panicking thinking like, how am I going to get through this again? Mm-hmm. And then I remember dropping him off at the sitter after that. She would often say like, oh, like, I think there's another stomach bug going around. So-and-so has been out sick. I just calling my mom in a panic in tears. Like, you have to go pick him up. I like, if you don't, like, I literally wanted to just go away for two weeks and stay in a hotel and not have to deal with any of it. Yeah. It's the most, like, you just want to flight. I just want to get as far away as possible. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's certainly very, very tough, especially through COVID. I'm going to guess there was a time where you guys were shut down and doing exclusively telehealth, but coming back into the fold. And we all have a range of clientele, some that were very, very cautious, some that were very, very over it and doubtful even of the significance. 
And so getting back to even going back into the office and being in that space doing in-person therapy again probably was also very hard. And we look at people that are essential workers that didn't have an option to do telehealth. It was that or their job. And some people were like, well, (laughs) not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah. And it's very difficult. And I I will say, you know, for you guys, I'm going to guess that there have been times where you both have gotten sick and actually vomited or gotten motion sick and vomited. And they're like, yep, they're none. And (laughs) so even if you have that experience and you survive it, it doesn't mean, well, you've had one, one experience and it didn't actually kill you, so get over it. But it can feel that way sometimes for the family members. It can be hard to understand, like, you've gotten sick before. Nobody mm-hmm. likes being sick, please, but like, whatever. Uh, so can we talk to that piece before? Even if you've gotten sick, this it's not going to just automatically take your brain out of this looping around this feared response. Right. And I think I have a couple of patients that I work with that like for them, it's not necessarily that they're like going to die or whatever. It's more they often say to me, like, I feel out of control mm-hmm. or like, you know, I can't I don't like the sensation. So it's just like it's so uncomfortable or terrible. They just don't want to experience it. Right. Absolutely. That makes that makes a lot of sense. How about for you, Barb? I mean, like like you said, and you guys both have kids, but you've gotten sick before, you've vomited before. And what was kind of the thought in getting through that and over it? Did do you feel like it amps up your anxiety? Did it stay about the same? Like what you survived it, but Yeah, so I agree with what Nicole was saying. I would add that we People with emetophobia have a long-term association built up in their brains. Our brains are really good at associating two things. And so, yes, getting sick was actually this learning moment of, oh, wow, that wasn't so bad. Kind of a, almost a, hmm, what do you know? (laughs) And uh, like, oh, I didn't have to be so terrified all the time. But again, we have a memory. Mm -hmm. We have this ability to form these really deeply connected associations. And so that fear is still going to get triggered the next time. Mm -hmm. Unless we get so sick for long enough that we do truly become desensitized to it and extinguish that fear. Right. I have yet to meet someone who's had that happen. So... Well, I think it it actually is a good thing mm-hmm. for people with emetophobia to get a stomach bug mm-hmm. <laughs> and they can learn from it. It can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I think we also have to be realistic that it doesn't just wipe it off the slate. Right. And yeah. that's hard for people who don't have this phobia to understand. Like, right. come on, you threw up and you made it. You're fine. Why are you still so upset now? Two years later, when the kids get sick again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. We're all like bobbleheading. We're like, yep, yeah. yep, yep. <laughs> we, we agree. And so really kind of empathizing with it's still there. And so the goal isn't necessarily, I like that you highlighted that because the goal isn't necessarily desensitizing the brain. Right. I mean, we'd have to have kind of flooded amounts of consistent exposure to that which is a whole we're now we're getting into a whole different ball game of difficulty and hardship 
But you might desensitize your metaphobia. I guess that is a silver lining. But, you know, in terms of the goal of treatment, and I think this very much goes in line with kind of the goal in OCD treatment, remission, you might still feel some anxiety about getting sick. Okay. Yeah. You might never love the sensation of throwing up and feeling like, am I going to get a chance to breathe in between? You, I, 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 and do, I would even go so far to boldly say you probably are never going to love that. That's most of us will. But at the same time, the goal is to say, you know, what are my values? I want to be able to go to the family picnic. I want to be able to spend time and go on a plane because I want to go travel. I want to be able to go to my son's graduation. I want to be able to go to my daughter's wedding and not worry so much about the the throwing up and the exposure to things. I'm always probably going to feel some little bit of that, but I can tolerate distress. I can I can still live my life even if I feel worried. And over time, that worry tends to decrease and decrease as we say, I'm going to lean into my values. It worked this time. Maybe it won't work next time, but I can embrace the uncertainty. Whether I get sick or not, I want to be able to live my life. Right. Yeah. So I think that's really, really helpful. You know, as we kind of draw towards a close here, any kind of last thoughts for our support community that is standing by our, you know, our warriors here and in emetophobia, even if OCD isn't there. I mean, it is torture. It's horrible. It feels awful. And it can feel awful for you as the family going, I feel like I'm torturing them too. And, and experiencing this, you guys are all on a roller coaster. And so any kind of last thoughts in terms of kind of the hope for family members getting through this a day at a time or from being able to see some light amidst the end of the tunnel, even if the tunnel's going to exist for a bit, just being able to see some light forward would be would be awesome. I think that, you know, really, you know, having a lived experience and treating people is very, I think, helpful. Mm-hmm. That knowing that like therapy does work. So, you know, I did my own exposure work with emetophobia concerns with my son and stuff and it I mean obviously I'm still anxious about that sort of thing but it is a life changer yeah like so really helping the patient feel decide like what their values are and are they living in line with their values mm-hmm. you know are you do you really want to kind of spend the rest of your life in your house not going out or doing anything or you know like what are what are you not doing that you would love to be able to do again and really just helping them engage in the therapy and realizing that, you know, it might take some time. It's not going to help overnight. But, you know, the more that you're willing to kind of gradually change some things, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that's a great example. And you talked about some of your own exposures, which I think can be really empowering for the client, for your loved one. They might really, really need it structured for them in the beginning. But when you get to the point of being able to facilitate that, it can feel really empowering. Because that sense of control, even though we're embracing the uncertainty and going, okay, I know exactly what's bugging me about this, so I'm going to target it, is pretty empowering as well. So that's a really great, great example. And for you, Barb, anything that you would add to that? Yeah, I I would tell family members, talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody who actually treats emetophobia. And they can hear all of the specifics of your situation. 
and give you very specific guidelines on what are the best ways to respond to your loved one who's afraid. When, as a family member, you're kind of a coach at home, or you can be, (laughs) you maybe don't want to be, but you can be. And I would ask family members to encourage their loved ones to approach what they're afraid of versus avoiding. And that might look like saying to a teenager who won't eat at a certain restaurant because they had E. coli outbreak, you know, two months ago or five months ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll give you two choices. We're going to go to this restaurant. You can either eat this or this. I think the other thing is allowing the person with the phobia to bear the weight of the phobia. Yeah. You can't fix this for them. Right. You can love them, you can support them, but you cannot fix it. And if they choose a behavior that takes them away from the family, certainly there's a difference if it's a nine-year-old versus a, you know, the dad or the mom. But recognizing where the boundaries are around this, what you can help with and what you can't. Absolutely. And, you know, that is... It's such an important piece, no matter what we're dealing with, you know, we can't do it for them. Mm -hmm. That ultimately isn't going to help them. They have to know that they can fly their own plane. We have to know that they can fly their own plane. And they're not always going to make the the best, most healthy choices. And sometimes they'll do a great job, but they don't have an opportunity to shine. They don't have an opportunity to learn if we don't give them the responsibility and the empowerment that actually you can do this. And that I think is particularly hard for parents because we want to protect our child. And, you know, more or less, I think what we are trying to point out here, I'll at least speak for myself, but it sounds like we're all on the same page here, is that this is the best way you can protect your child. To let them know that, you know, some things might lead towards sickness. They might not. But even if they do, are you going to survive? You will. And ultimately, we're going to try and live our life. You can't make that choice for them. And it's kind of like, you know, any any parent of young children particularly can relate to this. Like when you're potty training, you can't make them go in the potty. And then Nicole's like, I've got a two-year-old, so yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to start that? <laughs> they ultimately, and, and people with picky eaters or anything, you know, kids in general, they're going to be very fickle about certain things. You can't make them eat. You can't make them pee. You can't make them poop. They have to choose it. Well, the same thing when it comes to their treatment. We can provide an environment that is conducive to helping them choose it but we can't make them choose it. And in the end, when we are able to accept that, it's not all on us. There's actually a lot of freedom and relief because ultimately it is, they're their own person and they're going to have to choose it. We can do what we can to create an environment that is supportive, but they've got to fly. And thank goodness, because we've got some flying to work on ourselves. You know, we've got enough on our own plate. In terms of learning how to fly. And so even creating that environment can be hard. But letting them be the person and let them have their crashes and let them have their sores and celebrate them and encourage them to keep going along the way. That's 
that's really all we can do. And I think that there's a lot of freedom, whether we're talking about OCD, emetophobia, addiction, a number of different things. It's like, you know, ultimately they have to also make their choices in that. And it's not all on you. Thank goodness. But if you're feeling distressed with that, there's also help. You can get therapy. You can get support to go, man, this is so hard and have an outlet for that self-care as well. Yeah, Barb. I think I would add to that, that if we look at the real basics around anxiety, it can be helpful to think about anxiety as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. One side is this is going to be awful. It's going to be catastrophic. It's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be life-shattering. The other side of that coin is, and I can't handle it. So it's a real overestimation of the danger. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to help people with emetophobia to remember this might be distressing. It is not dangerous. That's yeah. a really important distinction to make. But as far as the family goes, if you can help them recognize or gain some perspective around their fear at any time, that can be helpful. Like if you're watching a movie and somebody throws up on the movie, mm -hmm. to stop and actually talk about it, mm -hmm. say, wow, you, you actually watched that. You did that. Mm -hmm. Way to go. Yeah. It wasn't as bad as you thought it would be. But then maybe more so, I think it's easier for family members to encourage the other side, the I can't handle it side, mm -hmm. and help build their confidence so that they know they can handle it. Mm -hmm. So if they go to the fair to say, wow, you did a great job today touching all the things and, and actually having a good time around all those people and using the public bathroom mm -hmm. and eating food from a, you know, a stand. Those are really great ways that families can just encourage and build up somebody with this phobia. Yeah. Sure. Great example. Yeah. I think that's a really, a really, really great point. And helping to link that connection that sometimes isn't necessarily thought of because they're like, well, of course I could do that. And it's like, no, of course. This is the same kind of thing that can kind of flip up here. And you did it. You yeah. are a rock star. And, and that's a very similar thing that shows up in OCD as well, is that when we engage in avoidance behaviors or when we allow for that, sometimes that messaging inadvertently gets sent that, yeah, I don't know that you can handle. We better, we better protect you from this because you're not going to. And if you think about it from a parent perspective, you might go, well, yeah, it's, is it worth the fight? Uh. And some days, realistically, we can just say, give yourself some grace. Not everything has to be a fight. Not everything has to be an emetophobia exposure. You don't have to be on all the time. But also, you, you know, recognizing like, hey, yeah, this can, this can make a big difference. And in just saying, well, we went to the fair, even if they have like a terrible time at the fair. You, but look, we're alive. We made it. Yeah, and look what we did. Where else might we be able to go? Maybe it'll feel terrible next time. Maybe it won't. But realizing like we can do fun things. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll get to be like at the Super Bowl at the end. You go to Disney World or something, <laughs> you know, but go to places where you might have never expected. And 
and that's exciting. It's a, it's it's empowering for not only the sufferer, but I think for the family to realize I'm not restricted. I never even conceived our ability to do things like this, and here we are doing it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that, like, so in my own work, like before I started doing therapy with some of like engaging in exposures myself during stomach bugs and stuff with my son, I like I just remember saying even to others, like, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. I can't do it. And I just, you know, realized like, okay, that's not very helpful language. So just reminding myself like, okay, yes, I can get through this. I can do this. It might be terrible, mm-hmm. but I can, I, you know, I'm not going to die. I'm going to navigate it. Yeah. Um, just the importance of those pieces is going to be helpful for the patients too. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of just flipping the script to I can feel anxious and still be successful. I can be feel anxious and still go to school. I can feel anxious and still touch this handle. I can be anxious and still feel nauseous. Yeah. People often discount their successes. Yes. Because yeah. they were anxious. Yeah. But that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> if- because while you're doing it, then you know you're on the right track. Yeah, right. you're super brave. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. It's the F word, right? Failure. <laughs> yeah, but there's another F word that comes with that freedom. There's yeah. um, there's some freedom and going. I don't have to. I mean, I think it's a little bit of this cultural like mirage that you're going to be happy and you'll be in this state of bliss and that it'll be continuous. If you just do it right. And it's like, we'll have happy moments, hopefully, but we're going to have hard moments. And you can feel anxious and still be successful. I mean, why is there a phrase about, you know, are you nervous about giving a speech? Imagine everybody in their underwear, you know, like, well, that must be a common enough thing that people feel anxious and yet they give speeches and they do amazing things. You know, it's it's really hard coming into treatment for a lot of people is so hard, but they did it. They might feel anxious as all get out, but they did it. And they, you know, as far as we know, they're on our, their heart still beating and they'll be there next week. Yep. Right. right? So it, it, you can survive with anxiety. Anxiety gets a bad rap, but anxiety can be a beautiful thing. It's a protective thing. It can be an exciting thing. It can be a torturous thing. But even if we're feeling that dread, doesn't mean we're not succeeding. We're living our life, aren't we? We we are taking a step. And so, yeah, I will often talk with families where they will come in and they'll be like, this, this week was really bad. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Tell, me, tell me more what happened. They're like, we're so anxious. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> but where's the bad part? And they're like, that's the bad part, <laughs> you know? And ideally, we don't want to stay in this constant state, but think of where you were before treatment. It was constant hell. And now it's like, man, you've had some hard times. Wow, you're really fighting it. Way to go, warrior. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a failure. It's the other F. It's the freedom that you're, that you're working towards. So I think that's so helpful. Well, thank you both so much for this time. This has been incredible just discussing kind of the different clinical aspects of emetophobia, but as well as hearing more about your shared experience and lived experience, I think, I think it's so helpful for people understanding that they're not alone. Because sometimes, you know, any of us, we might go into a specialist and be like, I don't know how they deal with that for, for a living. And 
you know, they, it's lucky that they must be on that side of it. And it's like, you know what? We're all people. We all have our things. We're all, yeah, we're all in it together. So thank you so much to both of you for lending your expertise, your experience with the OCD family community. I think it's going to be so helpful and really eye-opening for people in terms of emetophobia. It is more common than people realize. They're like, oh, that's a thing. I just thought, eh, I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. It was great. Thank you, Nicole. This was really fun. Thank you for that. Well, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed zooming into these different OCD-related disorders all through the month of November, and today's topic was no exception. So another big thank you to Barb Benson, as well as Dr. Nicole Bossi, for the conversation that they were able to create with us today in talking about emetophobia. And so for today's application segment, I, I'm going to keep it simple here. I want us to think about those spaces where we can lean in to our anxieties, lean in to our fears, because the goal ultimately isn't to have no anxiety, but it's to be able to still live our lives, pursue our dreams, live for our values, even if distress is there. So I'm going to challenge you, OCD family community, to lean into a fear. If you're not struggling with emetophobia or OCD, well, it'll give you an opportunity to experience what your loved ones are experiencing when they are leaning into their fears. But what's even more powerful is this is how we learn to live and thrive with or without anxiety, by leaning in, by telling ourselves that anxiety isn't going to rule us. Not today, and that's okay. It's scary. It's hard. But it's so worth it. You're so worth it. So that is the challenge for this week. And hey, keep tuning in, OCD family community, as we will continue with part four of this OCD-related disorder series next week as we discuss hoarding disorder. And while I didn't realize it when I was originally mapping out dates for the series, I realized during editing that this topic will post on what we call Black Friday here in the U.S., where people buy so much stuff. And I just, I love that I'm getting to bear some psycho ed on hoarding with a holiday that's all about consuming. So there's that. I love myself a little uh, helping of irony there. So if you're a Black Friday shopper, you can pop in some earbuds or AirPods or whatever you prefer and listen to the Hoarding Disorder episode. <laughs> For my U.S. fam, I want to also extend a happy Thanksgiving and to all of the OCD family community. Thank you for joining me at this virtual table. It's been an absolute delight and honor to host this podcast for y'all. It feels good to know that you're not alone. I'm not alone, and I feel that. So this Thanksgiving, I am grateful for all of you. Thank you for being here, for liking, subscribing, DMing, connecting. It's been an absolute honor. And thank you, above all, for all the love, support, 
education, and advocacy that you are doing for your loved ones. I'm endlessly inspired by your commitment and drive to learn more and love on your OCD and OCD-related disorder sufferers. So well done, family. And hey, I'll look forward to connecting with you again next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking puke with Cousin Duke. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.